Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School. The school welcomes artists from around the world to join us this summer in New York City or virtually from your home studio in the school's legendary marathons and learn from dedicated artists and to expand as makers. Rigorous and immersive, marathons unfold over 10 days from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time daily and present a wide range of art-making strategies combined with comprehensive critiques and inspirational discussions. Paradigm-shifting discoveries propel artists to relate to drawing, painting, and sculpture as direct methodologies in understanding their experience in the world, the profound impact of which continues far beyond each marathon. Generous, partial scholarships are available. Visit nyss.org to apply today. Sound and Vision is supported by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is an employee-owned company that makes the best artist materials for making that you can get. Over the last 25 years or so, I've been using Golden acrylics, mediums, and materials, and I stand by the quality in their products. They make acrylics that stay wet longer, they dry flat, mediums to make you paint super thick and beautifully fluid. They also make Williamsburg oil paints and core watercolors as well. You can find Golden in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the fine coffee makers at Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Fulcrum has amazing coffee beans that you can order straight to your door. On their website, you can choose from different roasts from different origins, and you can even get a coffee subscription where you can get different beans delivered to your door each week or month. I'm on this subscription plan and it's amazing. As a coffee fanatic, getting new roasts all the time delivered fresh to the door is amazing. If you get to Seattle, you can even see a 10 foot by 40 foot mural of mine in their 6th and Bell Street shop. Check out Fulcrum Coffee Roasters at fulcrumcoffee.com. Emily Weiner is a painter living and working in Nashville, Tennessee. She received her BA from Barnard College at Columbia University in 2003 and her MFA in Fine Arts at the School of the Visual Arts in New York City in 2011. She's represented by Red Arrow Gallery in Nashville and has exhibited work at White Space Gallery in Atlanta, the Kunsthal Grenland in Norway, WeSpace in Shanghai, David Lusk Gallery in Nashville, the Gedarfsen Museum in Iceland, the Leroy Neiman Gallery at Columbia University, Cult in San Francisco, Soloway in Brooklyn, and Grizzly Grizzly in Philadelphia. Emily has been a visiting artist at the American Academy in Rome, the residency co-leader at Watershed Center for the Ceramic Arts in Newcastle, Maine, an artist teacher resident at the Cooper Union, an artist in residence at the Banff Center in Canada, and resident at the Camac Art Center in France. She's an adjunct faculty at Watkins College of Art at Belmont University and was previously associate adjunct professor in painting at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn and faculty in visual and critical studies at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. Her past curatorial projects include Soloway Gallery, The Willows in New York City, and Vanderbilt University Gallery. 
Emily's work as an artist and curator has received press in the New York Times, The New Yorker, Art Forum, Artsy, The BBC, New American Paintings, Art News, Domus, and The Brooklyn Rail, among other publications and media platforms. She's a winner of the Fall 2022 Hopper Prize and a 2022 nominee for the Joan Mitchell Fellowship. I spoke with Emily about her roots in the Bronx, painting and frames, aging rock stars, giving kids mohawks, Gerhard Richter, F-holes, and much more. Here's our conversation. Remember Emily? Yeah, right. They're like... (laughs) Where'd she go? Oh, yeah. That's... uh, I got ejected from my old life. Spiritual transformation into a new new life. Yeah, nothing creates a new portal like Mm -hmm. that, you know? Mm -hmm. It's the... uh, Somebody said to me, like, somebody kind of... Uh, she, I think somebody told her this in the sixties when she was young, that she, it was, it's called the cosmic boot. <laughs> and I like that. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. It's, it's funny how it just evolves. It kind of mm-hmm. happens quickly, but then it feels like forever, you know, it's like a weird time warp that happens. Yeah. I'm but yeah, yeah. Once in a while, I'll see pictures of, of my son when he was like that age, like five. And I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> so innocent i know you know kids in the city they grow up like it's accelerated kind of thing i can imagine although you didn't you grow up wait where did you grow up i grew up in new jersey i was i was born in brooklyn and my parents did something similar where they um they had a co-op in park slope and my Mm -hmm. sister lived you know they had my sister and then they had me and after the second kid they it was not really sustainable anymore so they left and i grew up in yeah they they got the city cosmic boot yes they did (laughs) they did they left for new jersey where um you know it was just over the river so my dad was still commuting for the next 20 something years into uh into brooklyn where he was working and uh yeah grew up in jersey so kind of i think it was a little bit more of a bubble but we always had the city right there so yeah yeah so we're talking Bergen County? Uh, Union County. So Union, it, it's by Union, New Jersey. It's just past like West Orange. Oh, uh, okay. You, you, oranges. Yeah, right. you get through the Holland Tunnel, over the Plasky Skyway, take the one and nine to Route 22, and then you're in Union County. Right. It's probably closer to the city than some places deep in Brooklyn or Queens. But Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because as soon as we could or as soon as our parents would let us, we would be taking the train into Hoboken and then, then going into the city at night or for the day. Like around eight or nine years old. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) When we had our allowances and we could afford our subway tokens. Like, all right, go ahead. (laughs) Back by midnight. (laughs) Yeah. Well, my dad grew up in the Bronx. And so he had those stories of like when he was eight or nine, just riding the subway by himself. I think it was a, it was a different kind of city maybe. Yeah. Or maybe a different kind of parenting. Yeah, and a different kind of uh yeah, different kind of parenting. And technology changed it too. So yeah, ironically, we can watch, like we can keep track better, but in a way that makes us, I don't know, less free and easy. Like it's almost like more restrictive in a way. Mm-hmm. Back then it was like, well, what are you gonna do? Just go out and hopefully they come back. Hope for the best. Yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> 
kids wrap around them everywhere. Yeah, I, that's been my parenting philosophy so far, but we'll see. Yeah, well, so so he grew up in the Bronx. Yeah, he grew up in the Bronx. My dad. Uh, so his uh, his mother was born in the Lower East Side. In the you know went to middle school and went through school at one of those settlement houses. It was a, it's a Jewish neighborhood. Yeah. So she's born on Orchard Street, like in a tenement. You know, it's funny now that there's, you know, these, um, there's like the tenement museum and it's kind of like, uh, historicized, but that's, that's, those are the stories my dad and my grandmother told where, you know, they grew up going to, uh, you know, Russ and Daughters was there, Katz's oh, yeah. Deli, all of those places. And there's still a couple of holdouts, you know, like, I don't know if it's still there, but a couple of years ago when my sister was living down there, we would walk by this one it was kind of like an underground place near Ludlow and these guys were making matzah and you could like you could kind of like bang on the grate and they would put mm-hmm. a piece of matzah through the grate like give you some oh really <laughs> yeah so that was the that was the lower east side my you know my grandmother grew up in. and then then the Bronx became um like a Jewish enclave so he grew up there and the like just it was to, he was born just before the Second World War, mm-hmm. so it was kind of like a what he remembers is like a really like a golden era, like in the fifties. Kids playing stickball on the street, and Calvin Klein and Ralph Lauren were like his. You know, it was that neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. And this is like pre, like you were saying, pre World War II exodus of like you know. So yeah. like your family had been in New York for generations. It sounds. Right. Yeah. So who was that, the first to come over? Do you know? Can you go back yeah, that far? I'm trying to, I started to this a couple years ago when I got to Nashville and I started to feel very Jewish because I wasn't, <laughs> there's like, you know, in New York, it's, there's nothing yeah, it's, special. It's, it's yeah. just part of the fabric of the city. Um, but then I started to talk to, you know, some people here who had my same last name and I was, so I did some DNA and some ancestry. But I can't, it's very hard to find anybody before that first turn of the century immigration. Yeah. Because I think a lot of the, maybe there are records, you know, I think the Germans took, had very good records of everything. But as far as the United States goes, like a lot of names got changed. My last name, Wiener, is the last name that it means from Vienna. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they were from Vienna. The, the latest is like that I can track is Polish, came from like around a small, town outside of Krakow. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because of um, prof- like persecution unnecessarily. Like they weren't, I don't know what their lives were like, because I don't read Yiddish, but and there's a few documents left, but um, it was more of like an insular kind of, uh, they, their orthodoxy was conflicting with another rabbi's orthodoxy. So they, they went as a kind of a community to the United States with their rabbi. And they and wound up, new, right? yeah, started anew in the Lower East Side. Yeah, it's it's great. You know, I learned a bit about the Hasid, the Hasidic community, because in living in South Williamsburg for a long time, you know, yeah. and in the building that I first moved into, it was like my second place in the city in the late nineties. Um, it was basically one half was like artists, and the other half was a company, or like it was like factories and stuff. And yeah. there were there was a, a Hasidic gentleman who ran like a kind of like jewelry place on the other side of the building. Yeah. So I got to know like I I started to learn 
you know, I didn't know anything about the Hasidic community before moving to New York, you know, and I grew up in Pittsburgh and had a lot of friends from Squirrel Hill. There was, you know, a Jewish community there that I was friends with a lot of people, but the Hasidic community, I didn't know anything about, you know, and then it was like, it was so interesting when he was telling me that, yeah, it was just like this, this rabbi like broke off from, you know, it was just basically move to America, start a whole new thing. We have our own style. And then it was just like, a community community. It really is a thriving community. It's uh, my, you know, my family was really outside of that, but it was, there's like the kind of parallel Jewish communities. And I think right. like now the diaspora is even more fragmented. Um, but yeah, when I first moved to Williamsburg, I remember my dad driving me through and just being like, oh my gosh, I can't believe all the neighborhoods. My dad was like, I can't believe you're moving here. When we moved back to the Lower East Side, he uh, he had worked as a social worker through like the, the 60s and the 70s. So he was in like the thick of the AIDS crisis in New York City and also like, you know, homelessness early on, like when the city was still pretty broke. And yes. so he was so mad at my sister for moving to the Lower East Side because he thought it was still full of flop houses. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we didn't even know. We're like, Dad, I don't think that there is any existing flop houses in New York. <laughs> but he had pretty amazing stories about, you know, these kind of one, there were these kind of hotels for um, unhoused people in New York. And they would, um, you know, kind of had to check in for the night. And if they were in really bad shape, like very drunk and sick, they would sleep in a a room that I think it was called like the tank or something like that, where, you know, they would kind of sleep on the floor and afterwards they'd just hose the whole thing down at the end of the night. So I think his version of New York City neighborhoods is really different from the gentrified New York that we we were starting to kind of move back into. Right. Or maybe we were gentrifying ourselves as like, you know, young people artists yeah well i'm sure when you grow up in that era it's like wired in you know like oh yeah williamsburg is a certain feel or like you have an idea about it no matter how many starbucks or (laughs) you know what i mean this is like oh that neighborhood you know yeah even i mean i moved to williamsburg in the late 90s and um it changed a lot so much yeah, so, that was yeah. kind of painful when, you know, those big changes started happening, like the development. And, but uh, I think, you know, now just I, I was just back there this past uh, week because I had a, a booth at Future Fair. Yeah. And uh, I wound up having to couch surf because the the um, friend that I was going to stay with who has like a, you know, a beautiful brownstone, her husband had COVID. So I was like oh, thrown back into my like couch surfing 20s and I was staying at with somebody in Williamsburg one night, Midtown one night, but I got to see all of these old, you know, my old neighborhoods. And um, I don't know, there's, it, I think when you live in a city like New York, that, you know, the only constant has changed. So you have to start to accept that it's a living city. It's never going to be what, you know, what it was when you were there, or when you spent time there. Yeah. It's, it's inevitable, you know, it's nostalgia, I think. Oh yeah. Cause people, I mean, you know, people always wanted to be like, oh, it was so good back. But then when I first moved there and I was dating my now wife and she had to walk under Williamsburg Bridge to go down to the L stop. It was a yeah. little dicey, a little dicey mm-hmm. back then, you know, and I'm not yeah. nostalgic, nostalgic, not nostalgic for, that. for that, you know, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, there's other things you lose in the whole. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's weird because I don't really I have so many great memories from the city, but really what I miss the most is like my 
my dad is still alive, but I miss that part of, I don't know. It just feels like his city. It feels like an older, I think of, you know, it's like a, a generation we're losing in a way. Yeah. Like he's this kind of old school New Yorker uh, that it's, it's a little, that kind of New Yorker is not, will not really be around for much longer. I know it's crazy. It's like yeah. generations of people who came up when it was, you know, mm-hmm. not like that anymore. Yeah. But, maybe but I that's, guess that's it's part of getting older. and just, Exactly. You know, yeah. It, it gets surreal, right? You never mm-hmm. think you're getting older until, you know, certain things happen. And you're like, yeah, hey, I guess. Like, I like I'm telling the old stories that my dad does at every occasion, which is like, oh, right. you know, the, I'm, I'm going to be coming the old Yenta. <laughs> <laughs> you know when I was a kid. Exactly. Um, well, growing up in in Union, was it Union? I was in I was in a town called Mountainside. It's like a little. Oh, that's much more bucolic sounding than Union. It's, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, it was. We had like there was a reservation. There was like a um, we'd play in the woods. So it really yes, it was on the mount on the side of a mountain, kind of tiny. That's nice. What so what was your youth like? Um, I'm going to guess that your parents were fans of music. You know, they were. And I, my, my dad is like the old school, like Leonard Bernstein and like, um, but he did have like a lot of Leonard Cohen and, uh, and some, you know, Dylan, my mother was much, she was like a little bit younger. So she's, uh, she listened to a lot of Joni Mitchell. She was like a, you know, flower child. So yes. But then, you know, she went, she went through like the eighties, nineties thing where there was like the Phil Collins Genesis kind of <laughs> Did we <all>? awkward years. <laughs> yeah. So they were, but you know, they were not like classic rock people. So classic rock is something that I, I can't, you know, it was only after college that I, that I listened to most of the music that, that I think our generation listens to. I don't know. No, when I think of like older New York and I think of someone born in the Bronx grows up in, or around like Lower East Side or Brooklyn or whatever. I think of like jazz when I yes. think of the city at that oh, time. Oh yeah. Duke yeah. Ellington and you know Absolutely. Like Miles Davis or like that's the kind of music that feels very New York to me, you know. Yes. Yeah, that is what he listens to and still does. Nice. So <laughs> did you go so you're a fan of music? I think uh, actually I am, yes. You know, in looking at your your online presence, I mean you do share music. So there's some music there. It it seems like you have a a music bone in your body so oh it's so important yeah i mean i'm not uh i don't have any musical aptitude in terms of like playing music but it's i don't know it's part of i guess maybe growing up in jersey there was like a real there was a big punk scene and so that became part of like you know the identity of just like being kind of an alternative kid or being you know anti-suburban capitalist Right. But it also was the reason we were always going into New York was these shows in the city. Um, like, uh, you know, one of, I remember my, one of my first shows, we went to, we went to CBGB uh, to see the Toy Doll play. They were doing like, I don't even know, maybe like a 30 year anniversary show. And we went in two nights in a row and I must've been like 18 years old. Nice. And I remember that just being one of the coolest things ever. It was like, it was just so dirty and like sweaty and that was a really great moment. Um, yeah. And then uh, I went to school at Barnard in the Upper West Side and uh, there was this little radio station called WBAR 
I think it still exists. Um, and it was like, you know, you could have a radio show. College radio was a big thing. So my, my good friend, Lindsay and I would, we were DJs throughout college. Nice. I was and a that, DJ. That's fun. You get, you so get access, fun. you get yes. all the records, you know, it's, it's great. All the records, but it was like the time of Napster. So we were starting to stream music. Oh, um, okay. And, but the best thing was that we would get tickets to shows in the city. So every oh, week. I never got that. That's you great. Oh. No, we never got it. Well, I mean, I was at Penn State when I was a DJ. So there wasn't, shows were like indie rock shows in basements there. So. Well, that's fun too. I like Yeah, those were great. Shows. But yeah, that sounds like you had a good gig. We had a great gig. I mean, our shows were terrible. We probably, we were, the banter was ridiculous. And the audio, the, the quality of the, the, you know, those streaming downloads. I was playing a lot of like, just kind of joke music. And Lindsay was playing a lot of punk. Like she's from Eugene. So a lot of like crust punk, kind of unlistenable music. But Wait, what's uh, crust punk? Wait, Eugene, a- Oregon. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm thinking like Sleater Kidney and stuff like that. But or no, more like before. Di- like dystopia like oh, I don't know that. Uh, really kind of I don't know, little like yeah, dystopian music, dystopian punk. As opposed all... to the utopic punk. <laughs> the ones <laughs> that pulled us all together. I guess the clash yeah. and yeah, yeah, the Ramones, they're they're kind of there's more buoyant kind of punk. Yeah, it's kind of good vibe punk. Good versus... vibe punk. Yeah. Um yeah. So we 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 saw a lot of shows. That was a big part of my my college years. I know where, where were you going? Like, were you going downtown to see shows when you were, because you we were on the saw, Upper West Side? Yeah, like Irving Plaza, the Knitting Factory. I think Coney Island High was still around for a year or two. Uh, CBGB was closing just around then. Um, Brownies, or was that before your time? I think that was before. Is that, what's in, is Maxwell's in Hoboken? We would go yep. there. Yeah, Maxwell's. Mm-hmm. You're, if you go to Maxwell's, on any given night, wet back in that era, there's a good chance you would see Yellow Tango. They would just show oh, up. Oh, of course. Them. Yes. I don't know if I saw them there, but I feel like I saw them in a lot of kind of like concerts in the park. And um, I was, well, I went through a phase where I was really into like uh, indie kind of twee music. So Belle and Sebastian, I loved. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing them in Paris and like, that was one of the greatest. We like were on stage dancing and. My sister had lived in Glasgow, and so I might have even seen them there. We were music, we were music freaks. Yeah. My sister and I. Well, were you also when you were young going into the city? Were you also going to see art, or was that not on the radar yet? I wish I was seeing more art then, but uh, I I think music was a lot more accessible at the time. You know, art felt more like a private club, even yeah. though it's what I was studying, and um, I would go to MoMA. I remember going to MoMA a lot because it was a, it was more of like a safe haven and a place I could go by myself. Uh, when I was a, I was a junior during September 11th. So that was like really disorienting and, you know, being in the city as like a young person that I, I felt really alone at that time because it really was a moment where I think everybody feels this as a younger person, like everybody else has it figured out or knows what they're supposed to be doing. And I always had that. We're thinking like, you know, this person's got to figure out and they have it figured out. But when September 11th happened, it was even more like, what the F is going on? Like how, what am I supposed to do with myself? You know, I was still going to my classes. Um, 
but I went to the museums a lot because I felt like that was a little bit, that was like a kind of more spiritual experience where I could kind of commune with these <laughs> older artists who had been through some, you know, some real shit, like the yeah, that's wars true. and yeah. Yeah. So it's I like think the dialogue across time of, of there's some sort of like safe space. Yeah. Everything after 9-11 felt different for a while. You yeah. know, every experience felt, it's hard to describe the change. I know. Even I mean, watching COVID, movies. Yeah. COVID was like changed us and we can kind of describe it because A, it's recent and B, it was, it happened to everyone, like mm -hmm. kind of equally in a way. Mm -hmm. Whereas September 11th was very New York specific. I mean, not to discredit. No. I mean, it, it, happened, it affected everyone. but Absolutely. City, yeah. Like those of us who witnessed it, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. that, like that had a real effect, I think. Yeah. Well, it's, I think everybody really was affected so differently. Like I, we had a good friend who was, uh, he was living back in, I think, Scotland and he had, you know, been living in New York for a little while. And he said, uh, you know, I just wished I was back because he didn't want to be. So I, I think there's different reactions. I kind of wanted to leave because it was disorienting and a little scary. I felt really raw, but I, some people wanted to be there because they were like, this is the city I feel connected to. I wish I was embedded there. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, I think everybody, you know, like my husband who was in, he was in Nashville or in in Tennessee when it happened, he is just, he felt similarly, even though he wasn't a New Yorker. Yeah, it's weird. I never felt the desire to leave, but I think maybe it was because I'd spent so many years wanting to go to New York and and do make art and be there that like at that point in 2001 you know I was only there a couple of years but I was starting to you know do stuff and and it, it didn't even cross my mind but I remember going into the city and if I'd cross cross the bridge I would be like skittish you know yes. I felt nervous <laughs> for a while I, yes I remember that my parents were still living in New Jersey at the time so I remember Sometimes I'd, I'd leave the city and just there was like this anticipatory anxiety coming back. Yeah, it was real. You know, it was yeah. like you didn't know what was going on. I but, know. Um, it, it sort of recalibrated your relationship to the city in a way. Yeah. And maybe, a, you know, recalibrated our relationship to like, you know, what, what it means to be alive. Where it's like, okay, nothing is is 100% given. These The things we think are, are stable or are more ephemeral. Totally. And and another thing I think that happened, at least with me, was a broader like knowledge of the world. Like I feel like I was pretty sheltered in my zone of what I was interested in. And you Absolutely. know, being an artist promotes that that you get lost in your, you know, your tunnel of whatever it is that you're following. But I mean I learned a lot more about the world and politics and you know, international relations and geography, the whole thing, you know, it kind of right. opened my eyes up too, which, you know, is a good thing. Absolutely. People know more about the world. So, yeah, yeah the nineties, I think we were pretty sheltered in the nineties and not for the better. You know, I just, I think that, yeah, we needed yeah. to wake up a little bit. Well, it's been my whole, the nineties for me were basically college the whole decade. <laughs> um, almost. And, um, when you're in college, I think sometimes you'd go a little bit off the map. Mm -hmm. You get so into your, the world of like, you know, studying, figuring yes. out what you want to do, chasing people, you know what I mean? And like that social thing. And 
you kind of like lose the broader or not everyone, but I mean, at least I did. Well, I think that's the time where you're supposed to individuate, you know, you're, you're forming yourself and it's uh, some people who, you know, are, are, are ready to just get out, you know, and, and I was in a way, but I, but being going to school in the city was not as much of a bubble as, you know, some more like pastoral kind of colleges out, you know, that have a campus. Uh, yeah. Barnard didn't really have a campus. I mean, Columbia is across the street and there's like a quad kind of thing. But um, on the weekends, nobody's on campus. You're just out in the city. So it's a little bit of a hybrid situation. And for better or for worse, I think, uh, you know, you kind of have to be, yeah, it's it's just a different feeling. Like um, yeah. I teach now in Nashville at a Watkins College of Art at, and and I think it's, it's, it's nice. It's not as like intense of a city as New York, obviously, but it's, it's not completely removed from, you know, what, what your adult life is going to be like. So yeah, it's, well, it's really music it's cool. city. It is music city. Yes. That's another thing that is very cool about Nashville is um, the music runs so deep here. It's real. Like It's it, so real. You yeah. know, it's funny. Cause I was in a, I was in a band and we toured, but we never played in Nashville for some reason. I guess we just didn't know anyone because we booked our own shows. And um, so I didn't really experience Nashville. Like I've been through it, but yeah, until I had a show at the Frist and then I was actually there, like being there. Oh, amazing. I was, I was rocked. Like as soon as I got into the airport and got, there were guitars and cases (laughs) in glass cases. And I was like, shit, this is no joke. Like we went a honky tonk and, and, I mean, it was legit. No, this is like, you have to be a badass to be recognized in Nashville. And it's, well, I mean, I think in, in Nashville, you are, um, you're either country and that's like a whole thing. And it's a big yeah. industry, but there are also musicians that are doing, like my husband is a musician. And so he grew up, his dad was playing country music. So he grew up playing guitar and he was, he was, uh, he was in that world. Uh, by proxy, but then he moved to New York because there wasn't really an experimental music scene that he knew of. And he was Mm -hmm. starting to do like modular synthesis and getting really into kind of, I don't know, more experimental ambient, maybe like esoteric kind of music. And uh, we met and he was trying to do some solo projects, but when we came back, it was like Nashville is a, such a collaborative place for music. Yeah. You know, uh, I think in the city, we're really tired at the end of the day. And we're like, it's a, an individual pursuit. Like we're just working so hard. And on the way to your studio or whatever you have going on, there's like a thousand things pulling you. So at the end of the day, you don't really have time to like just meet up and jam or, you know, yeah. just uh, have the the energy to do that. But Nashville, he was amazed the the city had changed a little bit and he started playing with a lot of musicians here and they've um they formed a kind of ensemble called the nashville ambient ensemble Mm -hmm. and uh and and it was like i don't know it was really cool and and validating to come back um and have these like a music scene and also an art scene that that were kind of waiting for us we didn't know yeah it sounds like it opened up i mean because it is that kind of uh, stereotype that it's either country or pop country or you know and like when i went uh, we went to th- uh, third man and saw the studio like where they make the 
the yeah. records, like they carve in the records and stuff. And you know, there's that that connection to like the white stripes that yeah. leaves That's, its mark there. But yeah, it's Jack White's venue. And it's, yeah, well, it's the record label. Yeah. Oh, right. And he has a he's a little venue attached called uh, Blue Room. Oh, it's nice! This really beautiful little venue. That's it's like much nicer than what you would expect for like an underground music venue. Yeah. So they even have couches in the back, which is nice for the forty plus crowd. That sounds <laughs> it's nice. like yes, yeah, very welcoming. <laughs> I went to a speakeasy when I had my show there. I forget the name of the place. I think it was bird related. There was, but um, it was Sounds kind of this right. place where you go in. It does. It looks unassuming, but it was like that. It was like super comfortable, yeah. really nice, and really good donut. Like they were like donut hole donuts with. Like oh my gosh! Yeah, the donuts in Nashville. I oh, can't, it's, it's real. I wasn't a donut. I didn't like donuts. I don't know what was wrong. I thought with me, I knew just, you. Jesus. <laughs> All I think is like Krispy Kreme is what I remember from like growing up. That's all there Which was. Is amazing. Dunkin'? Really? Yeah, but, well, Dunkin's not good. Krispy Kremes are really good. And I went to a Krispy Kreme in Nashville that was one of the first Krispy Kremes. And it's got like an old timey oh, like, sign nice. and they make them on the spot. And it was really mm-hmm. good. But yeah, they yeah. have good donuts there. Nashville does still have that. Well, it was like such a sleepy backwater for so long that the historical parts are preserved. So it's not like New York that just had to like raise everything and build a, you know, a skyscraper on top of it immediately. Yeah. There's there's a lot of those little enclaves that are like kind of cute historic, keeping this the signs and the Krispy Kremes alive. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's <laughs> got that that vibe to it. But um, well, let's go back really quick to the city like when you're in high school like how did art enter your life in a way that was more significant or to where you're like oh i'm really into this because it sounds like i mean if someone dipped into this they would think you're a musician right yeah no uh i don't know i think it's one of those things where you find the the thing that lets you kind of survive like leave the space I had a very angsty kind of adolescence and uh I just think art was the one thing that I knew I could always come back to and it's been one of those constants in my life and uh I think maybe it had something to do with having some aptitude in the beginning I I don't think that is something that's required for artists at all you know because skill is something that's learned but I don't know. I think I just was always gravitating towards it. And um, my family was, was really supportive of it. I don't think they expected much of me like to go in any direction. So that was the direction I chose. And, and I didn't, you know, and I didn't go to art school. I probably would have, if I knew more about what that would entail, but my parents were not, you know, they weren't of that, uh, you know, they worked in, my mother was a nurse and my dad was a social worker. So they really didn't even understand what an art career could be like. Right. So I went to Barnard because it had good academics and it was in the city and it, it was just a thread I kept following. And it was something that I felt like I really couldn't live without. Like it was for my students. I really, I'm like, you know, if you don't have to be an artist, I don't think you should, because it's not easy, <laughs> you know, right. if it, but I, I think I really didn't have much of a choice because everything else made me pretty depressed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's that kind of, uh, as a te- speaking as a teacher, when you have students and they're not 
like totally into it, you're kind of thinking to yourself, boy, like this is the kind of like thing that you really got to be into it. And still it's going to be hard. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But if you're just like, man, I think I'll make art. It's like, no, tough. Yeah. Absolutely not. What do something else? You know, it's right. there, there at least there's, you know, there's other careers where a path is laid out for you where you can follow some steps and and be comfortable and be a professional, but art is one of those where I don't know, at least for me, I can only speak from my own experience. Like it was pretty rough for the first decade, you know, coming home to like, you know, talk to my cousins and my family and they're asking, you know, like what are you doing? And I'm like, you know, I'm working a day job. I'm like hardly making my rent. <laughs> and it just didn't make any sense to them. It, yeah. it was like unfathomable. They're like, you're a smart girl. You went to a good college. Why are you, why are you, you know, living hand to mouth? But, yeah, but I, you were compelled to do it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you were right. I'm guessing you got to where you got. So I'm guessing you just didn't trip and find your art career. So you had it within you and you were driven to do it, you know? Yeah. But then I there's mean, people who aren't really that driven. They're like, no, I'll just major in art. Well, and then where like, do they go after? I don't know. I think there's I like a know. big, there's a big drop off after school where they kind of go in different directions. So maybe for some students go getting an art education is good because it helps them kind of maybe figure out who they are. But yeah, if, yeah, if their heart isn't in it, it's I'll probably do something else. Right. But you can always use um, creativity in other work and it can be an asset. You know what I mean? So I tried to like, I taught a special or a special topics class that was kind of about that. Like you may not want to go into fine art or do just nothing but art, but here's things you can do or how you could take creativity into other areas. You know what I mean? Which is, I think people end up finding that stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah, But it's tricky. Yeah. And when I was younger, there wasn't really as much of a focus on like career immediately, like kind of just were taking classes and nobody was talking about professional practices. And even the art history and the theory that I was learning was like so above my head. I was like, how is this like, you know, Adorno going to apply to my painting and I was just it was just kind of swimming in it in school but nobody told us how the package was supposed to like fit together to be like a you know something that's preparing you for a career um when I was at Barnard Benjamin Buchlow was uh, an art historian there who's you know he's like the Gerhard Richter kind of it's like inseparable with Richter and Gerhard Richter was one of my favorite artists but it was like really it's interesting because I think it's taken me about 20 years to unpack like Buchlow's relationship with Richter, which is like very non-sentimental, like theoretical and, uh, and my relationship with it, which I think you could only kind of parse out just living through it, you know, kind of really understanding artwork that's that complex. Nobody can give you the handbook. They can give you a lot of approaches. Um, but I think it's, it's just really interesting now being in my forties and having that perspective of like what, um, what painting, what the painting game was back then, which felt really much like a, a, like at least the way we were being taught was like an end game towards like, how can you keep painting after painting is dead. And today when that is not even, I mean, it's a conversation, I guess, in an art historical way, but um, so 
that reconciling, you know, I, I felt like I had to go through that process of figuring out why am I painting? Why am I still doing this? And I, I definitely didn't think like, okay, well, I'm, I'm like Gerhard Richter, he's still doing it. But I, I did feel like there were role models like who were from my, you know, who I liked when I was really young. And then people I met in New York who were really making careers out of it and also were maybe not from families that, you know, their, their parents were already in the arts and they knew how right. to navigate this place. Yeah. Like um, when I graduated, one of my first jobs, so I, I was living with a, a friend, Michael Guerrero, and he was Kehinde Wiley's assistant. And so and this is when Kehinde was having his first solo show at the Brooklyn Museum. And he was yep. like scrambling a little bit. It was, it was after he'd had a Deitch project show and he had this big exhibition and it was like, the deadline was so close. And so Michael was like, he's looking for assistance. And so I showed up and a couple other Columbia graduates were there. And that was my, it was really early. And that was like my first experience of seeing an artist who was like, he did not have the means yet. You know, he didn't have the studio set up or the finances, but he knew that he was going to do it, you know? Right. And he was yeah. like, by any means necessary, like whatever I have at my disposal right now, I'm going to use it. To, to move forward now and then like kind of watching that career is like every step forward he's like expanded you know the possibilities of what he can do with a art career yeah. so that, that was a really cool example and he was also just kind of an amazing person to be around he was like everybody who was in that studio was on his he treated so well and like was on his level you know literally we were like in a one room <laughs> apartment That's with cool. That's painting on the hear. floor yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so I mean maybe the, I don't know I felt I felt like that was a good you know a good role model and he had a lot of uh like Mickling Thomas was a good friend and and Caleb Lindsay was working in that studio and all of those artists kind of I think they had a good community yeah so and then I, know, I, I yeah it, it's funny I was just going to say when you mentioned that you know Gerhard Richter being someone that you were really into. I think that also kind of like generationally like kind of resonates, you know what I mean? Because I feel like nowadays, like young students, <laughs> maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like no one cares about like these big, or not no one, or just like those, those canon artists. I know. It's almost like, ew, like we don't, they just, it's like Instagram is where they're finding the inspiration. Yes, like always. it's not, you know, like David Sally or, you know, or artists like, it's so I don't funny. know. It's it, very it just funny to like me. it's changed. Like what the, the metric of like what people are interested in. You know? Well, I think it's maybe because we would have to go to get books, you know, like I would have to go to the library to get a catalog or go to the strand or go somewhere and those were the the big beautiful books. It was like the big Richter book or the That's big right, yeah. Alex Katz book. Or nobody wants to to lug around a, a catalog from apartment to apartment anymore. It's like <laughs> we don't it's collect. I mean, I don't think students collect those anymore. No, I take my students to the library just to show them that there's this building, right? <laughs> <laughs> and inside, yeah, there's a Starbucks in there, but they also have books, and you can go just thumb around and look at all these different books and it's a different way to randomize a algorithm of searching for something yes, yes. it's curated by art history but you know 
it's an interesting way to come across things. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah, it's it's it feels like it's changed a lot. But when you were in school, when you were at Barnard, how did you how did you determine or like when did you start working working, you know, to where you felt like I'm making like this mm-hmm. is my voice. I'm starting to make stuff that you know. I think it was like sophomore year. I had this. Actually, no, maybe it was junior year because I it was the it was the um, the semester of September 11th. I had a really great class, and I don't think it's due to the teacher at all. I think there were really amazing students in the class, and we. Um, I mean, not that he was a not a great teacher. Archie Rand was. <laughs> The teachers sucked, but the the students were great. (laughs) He would confuse us. You know, he'd come in, he'd he'd say like, this class is like going to be like harder than, um, you know, like organic chemistry. You're going to be spending more time here than you've spent on anything else. So he kind of like set these expectations, scared us a little bit. And then he'd go on some kind of crazy rant about like, you know, I don't know, like to Kiriko and our, you know, the surrealism and our connection to these dead artists or whatever. For 20 minutes and then he'd leave and we were just and he'd leave leave like Drop just a ghost yeah. yeah and uh he wasn't around i mean i don't think he looked at my paintings once at the very end of the semester and maybe he was on his way out i don't freaking know but like you know that was a very confusing semester but the one thing i did have was i would go to the studio and just you know work in that studio in dodge hall and paint and paint and paint yeah. and there were other artists that were there doing that and i was like okay well this is a thing you know yeah, it was different than art school because I guess that's just what you're ex- is expected of you in art school. At Barnard and Columbia, nobody was spending their time in the studios. It wasn't like uh, something that anybody told you to do necessarily until until that class, you know. And so that was really eye opening in a way. I was like, okay, we're here. One of the hardest, you know, you know, weirdest moments in history in the same city where you know. Yeah, just like smelling the smoke of the, the towers and we're just painting and that seems appropriate somehow. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you connected with maybe not whatever's going on in the club, whatever, but you connected with the act of being and like going to the studio and making stuff. Yes. And that, that is such a big component of doing it is mm-hmm. to connect with the process to make yes. it something that, that you wake up and you're like, I want to go to the studio. Like, that's just what you want to do. You want to mm-hmm. go to that space and think and make. And, you know, I, I think if you don't have that, it's really hard to commit. It's really hard yeah. to make it happen. I mean, I, I've, we've all seen some people who, you know, want to be an artist and they have a studio and they'll go do some things, but they're not like they're there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You really have to connect with it, I think. Yeah. And for me, I think it was even more than just connecting to it because it's something that like I want to pursue as a career. It wasn't really what I was thinking. I I just needed a more a, like a place for transcendence. And I didn't have, I was not religious or even necessarily spiritual at that time, but that was the one thing I knew I could go back to, to try to like connect on a, I don't know, a more emotional, spiritual level and not you know, be dragged down by whatever was happening in my life or uh, in, you know, in politics and in the country. And so it became a little bit of like a survival strategy, you know, and yeah. I, 
And, uh, and it's also, I, I'm dying now to go into Jungian analysis because I think I've kind of done that to myself over the, the last two decades is like through these, like in this weird kind of dream imagery and like uh, excavation of like not knowing what I'm doing, but then kind of looking back at what I've made. It's like, I, I've really learned a lot about myself and like figured things out that were really like unnameable or that I couldn't really have understood at the time. Um, so yeah, I think I have never really thought about that, you know, why, why that, that when I started doing this, but I do think it was that time where I just was trying to escape a little bit. Yeah. I think a, a lot of creative pursuits scratch that itch of like needing an escape out from whatever, whatever mm -hmm. it is, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. A lot of people who are creative or artists need that space like it's almost like a head space and a flow state and a yes. safe space and yeah. also a like-minded community even if it's not really like-minded it's just the idea that there's a community of people out there who are also marching to the beat of their own drum yes and you people know that, who would understand you you know understand this yeah. like level of conversation that you know i i could drop into like a group of artists and start like just talking about like psychological, like deep psychological kind of concepts. And that is something that artists can just, we could just do with a stranger or, and that's not a normal thing in the world. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think you become trained into that in a way, just by being comfortable with exploring your own ideas and relationship to the world through images or creative acts or music or whatever it is. And then that becomes part of your language, the way that you negotiate reality and express yourself, you know? And so you can just hop in with someone else and go right into it. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, yeah, it is, it's different. And then it's hard sometimes to adapt to people who aren't in that world. And then you have to go have those conversations, which are just like, so topical, humdrum, <laughs> you know, like, oh, hey, how's it going? You know, weather or whatever. Yes. Yes. Having kids helps with that because then, you know, totally. at a certain point you need to just talk about like the most mundane things. Like, where did you get that pacifier on Amazon? It's, Great. You know, it is so <laughs> true. I became so much more socially um, engaged and, and uh, capable in being a parent and having to deal with those situations <laughs> to where at first it was like a struggle. And it's like, it well, I gotta, struggle. I gotta, you know, engage with this community because I don't want my kid to be, you know, a, a sociopath. And then <laughs> eventually you just become fluid in that yes. environment, you know, yeah. and you realize the value of it, you know? Yes. Yeah. Like connecting to people who you don't necessarily have to be a, like an extremely deep or profound person for me to talk to you. Just be a kind person right. or like willing to talk to me. That's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be a jerk. But don't be a jerk. No, but I, I think that maybe was the the salvation in art. And that's like what people are ultimately going towards is like to find a language, like a place where you can live in the world and actually kind of lift the veil of like, what is all this like background bullshit, you know, like, mm -hmm. and, and be able to communicate with other people on a level that um, is a little bit more profound. I think that's where all my struggles came from early on, where I was kind of looking around, I was like, what is, what are you guys talking about? Like, what, yeah. what is all of this for? And there's so much like masquerading and pretending we know what's going on. But um, at least in the art world, it's like the mystery is embedded a little bit. You know, we, we know that it's like, we're all talking about the ineffable. 
but we're doing it in a professional way that is like legitimate and has like these structures around it. But at the center of it, there's nobody can define really what, you know, an individual art practice is about. Yeah. Well, that's it. Let's define yours. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, this let's tap into this Jungian, you know, this idea, because I, you know, it's so funny because at one point you were talking about lifting the veil and as you moved, there was a painting behind you of like a curtain. <laughs> and I was oh, like, yeah, that's, that's kind of the perfect like image to uh, reflect. So what like, let's go into the your work and like what you're talking about or what kind of images you're, I mean, you did, did I mistakenly interpret you as alluding to the fact that like, well, I don't even really know exactly what these things it's almost like, do you make images that you're compelled to, and then you reflect back and look at it and try to interpret it? Or do you go in with a defined, you know, set of parameters for a painting and say, well, this is what I'm doing. And it means this, but other people might read something else into it. And I, I guess that question yeah. to lead in, because it's like, I think your work is, has ephemeral elements to it that are seemingly like bigger than something but there's a narrative playing out that we don't necessarily have the story to i think it's the former like i it's more so but uh one painting can lead to another so i have like some ground to start on like that the first painting that had these curtains it actually was it, i think it came about like while i was still in new york and i realized now it was like i was i was pregnant and it was like this moment where it's like I don't know what's behind this curtain, but I know it's like a passage. It's like a next phase. And so I was doing those curtain paintings throughout, you know, when my move and when my, my son was like in his toddler years. Um, and then uh, these other, the other imagery that's like, it's, I've kind of had this art historical references that are always kind of coming up in my work. And I think, again, that's like trying to parse out this art history kind of, you know, education that I had um, and making sense of it on my own terms, like in my own encounters. So I was doing a lot of like layering of like there'd be an ancient Greek urn, but like in a landscape or in like, uh, you know, like these images of columns that were kind of coinciding with like, you know, a like an all seeing eye, like kind of these arche- like these images, symbols, archetypes coming from everywhere like all on the same kind of level playing field. But most recently I've been thinking about theater a little bit more. And uh, I think it happened after those curtain paintings even more because I um, I, I moved to Nashville and I, I started working at a museum collection. It was a, at Vanderbilt University. And um, I, I was like just playing so many roles in my life. You know, I was like at home, I was like the role of the mom. And when I went to work, I was like, I started to feel like I was this like magician's assistant. You know, I was like taking these artworks, they're this amazing artwork from like, you know, they were like Neolithic, you know, Chinese like tomb objects. And there were like uh, ancient Greek and Roman, like, uh, you know, archival amazing, you know, pieces and and I was just like wheeling them out for classes, like kind of like felt like a Vanna White kind of character, you know, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, and it was just the reveal over and over. And then I was putting on exhibitions and I felt like I was, I was just playing all these stock characters in my life and they were really not 
you know, and then on the weekends, I'd be the artist where I was trying to like do this kind of other, I was the magician itself. And, uh, and then it was kind of naturally, like I realized I was doing this in my life, but the, the stock character started coming through. Like I was painting, I would like had, I was kind of compelled to paint like Piero's costume or these like, um, the white rabbit, the dove, like all of these kind of accessory characters to theater and performance that were like a little bit the unsung hero, like a little bit the sad clown. Um, and, and so that's where those recent imagery, imagery comes from, but it also draws a lot from, um, you know, art history. Like I, I, I use the F hole from the violin, which are also, you know, Man Ray's like signature, the Violon d'Angre was like the Kiki de Montparnasse had like those, F, F holes on her back that were kind of like objectifying her. And oh, I didn't think of that. That yeah. is so good. I you mean, know, I, like, I just went to instruments because, you know, like cello or, you know, that's, that's where my mind went, but that's so true. I didn't know, but like these symbols can work beyond what we initially think, you of know, course. them, they yeah. can like something that simple. If you put it on like a kind of, pear-shaped object, it becomes a body, but like, you know, a body you can play, a body you can make do what you want it to do. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how this is all. It, a lot of it comes up just like um, when I'm not trying to come up with ideas. So like, I'll be in the shower or taking a walk or listening to music. And then I'm like really compelled to paint white rabbit. I'm like, what the F, why? You know, and I don't, I'm not thinking like, you know, there's a, like a higher power or voice, but I think that my subconscious has some good ideas that if I let myself just kind of not pay attention and, and drive it, then I'll get the good ideas. So often, like you can see in my studio, I have like a lot of paintings going on at once. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll start one usually like with a stock image, like see that there's some curtains back there. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, am like working on other paintings while I'm waiting for ideas to come. So like often things will just like click together, like, Oh, now I know how to resolve this curtain painting. Like I have to superimpose this image of some weird art historical reference that has some non sequitur connection that right. for some reason creates this bigger narrative about culture more generally, like beyond what, you know, whatever kind of topical issue that I'm going through in my life. It's, um, you know, I feel like as artists, we're also people and we have these models in our lives for, you know, who we're supposed to be. And sometimes it can feel really restricting. And for me, it's like, it's helpful to be able to name it and name why I feel you know, like at this day job, I just was not feeling like I was living a double life. You know, I was this, I was like this person in workwear outfit, you know, like smiling and showing up, but it wasn't really what, you know, it, I wasn't an artist. Nobody knew who I was. So. Right. Um, well, can you talk a little bit too about the, the frames of the pieces? Because it seems to be such a huge element in the work. How did that start? Uh, I started doing that for a show that, so I used to run or co-run a gallery Soloway in Brooklyn and it's still an artist run space. It's like, was started by three graduates from Bard. Um, and then it's just been like a rotating cast. And I did a show there where I was starting to paint on the frames 
as kind of like an extension of the painting. Like I was thinking about ornamentation and material value in addition to symbolic form. Like how can I extend these ideas outside of the painting? And those were on wood. And then I had a show in Iceland with a few uh, artists that I met in graduate school. They were Icelandic. And uh, we showed at this museum. Uh, it was called Gerdersop. It was like right outside of Reykjavik. And it was the permanent collection of this, um, this female um, sculptor from Iceland. Her name's Gerdur Helgadotter. And she was a sculptor and an ice, like in a um, stained glass artist. So she really worked in like stone, glass, like more tactile kind of materials. And we put on this like kind of collaborative group show and she was one of the ghost collaborators. So like we were taking some of the ideas that, you know, she was working with, which were like really archetypal imagery and had a lot to do with what I was doing at the time. But I felt like materially, I was not connecting with that more tactile kind of way of, of making. So I started making these frames out of ceramics. So like very elaborate process of like, you know, having to make slab construction uh, frames and firing them. And it was a learning process to figure that out. But I really love now, like the frames are integral because they, they're like a secondary, it's kind of like it, there are these, they demarcate the space of like suspended disbelief, kind of like when you're looking at the theater, like a, when you're sitting in front of uh, a stage, it's like, here's the, we're going to open the curtains and you're going to believe what is ever inside. Right. And we do that with painting, right? And we do that with art. When we walk into a white cube gallery or wherever we're supposed to see art. But I, I think the frame for me is like another, it's like another extension of that. It's like, why not make it ornamental? You know, like, yeah. and uh, I, I also like that, you know, it's this ceramic is like traditionally like a woman's, you know, it's like a material that a woman could have, you know, been validated and used throughout history, you know, in the right. Bauhaus and, yeah. So yeah, that's so that where those frames came from. Resonated. Um, and then you're I, I I keep wanting to ask this question just because I'm looking behind you, but your gradients, how do you are you doing those just with the breath? Like, do you have any gradient mm-hmm. hacks? Oh yes, I do. So these I taught for a long time, you know, like methods and materials. I taught at Pratt and the School of Visual Arts. And I was uh I think I got to this method because I was starting to look at a lot of Renaissance painting and how that, you know, the light and Renaissance painting come from really white grounds and the, the light coming through several layers of paint. Yeah. So um, I think I was in grad school and I was painting and Marilyn Minter was one of my teachers and she came in and she was like, these are smart, but you need to learn how to paint. And I was like devastated because she basically was telling me I was like a bad painter. But later she explained, she was like, you have like the magic happens in paint and oil painting when you layer paint. Like, it's not just like when you have, if you're an impressionist and you like thick impasto paint, that's one thing. But I was trying to create like illusion and depth and light and I was doing it in like one shot. So these are, um, these gradients take a lot, like a very smooth kind of, uh, very bright white surface, like a canvas, and then layers of like gradient on top of gradient. So what winds up happening is like the light, it's kind of coming from behind the painting and it's bouncing in between the layers of, of oil paint. Right. Yeah. It's, it must be so much, well, maybe not. I would imagine it's easier in oil because 
it stays wet. So you can feather. Yes. Can, oh, yes. And I have all of these. I don't know if you could see over here, but like so can, many yeah. brushes. There's, yeah. And I use a lot of these like mop brushes because they're so good at blending. There's more over here. It's just so many brushes. That's also yeah. the trick. And, yeah, it's and, like I, in acrylic, it's so different. I feel okay. like it, it's a real, because I do a lot of gradients and it's a time, it's a pinch, you know, mm -hmm. it's always like, getting it before it dries which is tricky yeah you're racing to, to until the material like kind of gets too sticky oil paint is so nice like that yeah you can really work with it yeah and, and the same thing it's like if you want the luminosity coming from the gesso from underneath it especially like if you ever work with like well in acrylics you can work with fluorescent paints and it's like the more opaque underneath the less bright it is so you want that you know light coming through and um, if you, if you mess it up, you have to go over it and you lose your transparency so or translucent mm -hmm. qualities. Mm -hmm. So it's a real, it's kind of like a race, you know? Yeah. I think, you know, the old masters had some, you know, they, they discovered this over so many years. So it's like, you can't beat them. You might just use the, the same techniques <laughs> that they develop, you know, it's a little regressive, right. but it's, uh. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It is kind of magical what you can do when you kind of look at these really old painters. Well, it's like that with music. You know, like if you're playing mm -hmm. guitar or piano or something, there's there's techniques, you know, that you Absolutely. can use Absolutely. that have an effect. It's funny, I keep looking there too because there's a painting, the painting behind you with the pink, sorry, people can't see this, <laughs> but there's a painting of a night sky with cur pink curtains and then it looks like a yellow moon in the middle. And then on this monitor, I have, uh, paint that's a similar painting with an orange moon and light blue Whoa. curtains and i keep going back and forth between the two which is kind of fun yeah. but you do you do um sort of i don't want to say repeat but you use these themes in different iterations you know and when you show them although from what i gather like you don't really show a lot of those together right when I show my work, it kind of is like, it's a little bit at first of like a jumble, you know, things are like, yeah. it's like, where, how do these things connect? Uh, it doesn't make sense right away. It <laughs> doesn't you know? make sense. But I think that's the way that I have to work. Like, otherwise, when, when I try to make like a series and I'm, and I can pre-plan them, it just doesn't, it's like, it feels very mechanical. It doesn't feel like it has the, it's soulful. So yeah, I like those, like those synchronicities, like that you're looking at that monitor that's the inverse of this painting. Like mm -hmm. that's exactly how I know what to do next. When there's a weird synchronicity that doesn't have a perfect explanation, but I'm like, okay, these F holes go with this, I don't know, photo, this Instagram photograph of Kim Kardashian or something. I don't know what, but it's uh, it's like that. Who's that? I'm sorry, I've never heard of <laughs> Yeah, like the painting a, behind you though doesn't is it the one that has the, the sort of lighter conical no. shape? That's mm -hmm. a different one. Yeah, those are some different. I don't really. I, everything is gone from my studio now because of. Uh, I have a show right now at Future Fair. Well, Future Fair just closed, and that's going to show at uh, in Philadelphia. So everything's gone. But yet there are a few of those where sometimes the curtains will have like a moon behind them that has like a kind of yeah like a. Like a cone Close of light. Of third in kind. Yes. Like the third kind, like 
yeah well you know what i mean when it comes down yes. to like absolutely light behind it yeah it's like a beam me up kind of light yeah yeah more like a beam oh yeah like in galaga did you ever play galaga <laughs> yeah. whenever it's trying to capture the other one it's kind of like that <laughs> or you know what i recently realized that maybe this is where that imagery comes from it's like that deeply embedded in them um, i was reading my son the book good night moon oh it's such a good book such a good book and those illustrations are like so gorgeous and every light in that in that um book is like has that cone of light and it's the way directional it's, yeah it's amazing it's yeah. amazing i think so, kids books have probably for artists leave an imprint like harold and the purple crayon was huge for me yes and My then son. then when you have kids you start reading new ones and then they do you ever read the one uh, it's like little Lori takes the subway or something. I forget what the <laughs> name of it, but it's Maurice Sendak. And it's about a kid who oh. gets on the wrong train in New York city and ends up like in all these different places. But it, they're so impactful. I think good kids books. Can oh do my that. gosh. Maurice Sendak is one of the, yes. I mean, I, I'm sure that he's influencing my painting in ways that I don't even know. Yeah. It gets in the, mm-hmm. the unconscious. Well, especially you seem like you're dealing with a lot of, Un, you're letting the Oof. unconscious in i'm going deep yeah and it's coming it's like it's, yeah i'm looking for the flow state but I, i'm also wanting to make good paintings so they they have to have some logical uh, often you know i i spent some time as a writer like you know one of my day jobs along the way was i was a staff writer for the art section at time out new york and i've been a writer for art forum so i'm very good at like you know letting all of this stuff uh, seem really intuitive and um, kind of not not connected, but at, afterwards I can be a little bit of like my own analyst. So I think yeah. that's a good skill to have because it's not just nonsense. You know, I think I can kind of parse out what's going on, but only after the fact. Yeah, no, that's very useful. <laughs> um, I ask people often what they feel like their paintings sound like musician wise do you have any thoughts oh it's oh it could be a genre music or specific yeah i guess it has to be like some kind of um like an ambient kind of i was gonna say you know in all that talk earlier about ambient you could see an eno sort of like yes music for airports yeah, that cover isn't <laughs> cover is kind of like a gradient, right? It's a sky or something. Mm-hmm. Yes. See that. So let's all right, let's spend a couple minutes here on the ambient music. Oh, you listen to a lot of ambient. I no? don't. No, my husband does. So he's like uh, the okay. audiophile and I'm I'm like rebelling by listening to like a lot of like mainstream, like Harry Styles and and hey. like yeah, I mean nothing wrong with that. And <laughs> A lot of the, I'm surprised at how much pop music now has trace elements of some of that esoteric music you were talking about. You know, right. whereas like, you know, I was into electronic music when it was starting, basically, you know, when it was really like in those earlier uh, Napster days, that's when like a lot of like IDM was born, you know, and uh, a lot of stuff that I remember from that era, you hear like my son listens to almost nothing but hip hop. Oh, yeah. And there's elements of that stuff in there, you know, it's pretty cool how it kind of mutates and, you know, there's a lot of, um, this might irritate you. Um, there's a lot of seventies <laughs> prog jazz fusiony funk stuff whose record covers 
have an element of a little bit of like your visual iconography? Oh, I'm so into that. Yes, absolutely. Okay. I mean, because that I think that it, it, it goes back to like some version of nostalgia. Also, although I don't know exactly what genre you're talking about, but 70s kind of, um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of that happening here because when I was growing up, like what I was really looking at and when I was starting to paint was like National Geographic's like Kodachrome imagery that's like super saturated kind of print material. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes hand in hand with like the music of the time, you know, the yeah. whole kind of, you know, this Kodachrome veil that now students would like my students would call like a filter. <laughs> it was right. like really de- defined a, you know, a whole kind of way of seeing. Yeah. Um, Yes. So that definitely comes through. Well, you know, in that in that era, the technology in music with like, you know, synthesizers and the digital, the the advent of synthesizers and stuff like that broaden the spectrum of tones in music. So if you think about it visually, it's almost like the spectrum of colors got so much wider. You know, absolutely. I mean? Yes. That they didn't have the ability before you know, moogs and synthesizers and theremins and stuff like that to like create those sonic tones to the the depth that they were able to. So like Chick Corea or Miles Davis, some of those later records and uh, Donald Byrd and and like that kind of visual aesthetic, they were mimicking some of that, I think. Oh, amazing. Imagery in the stuff. Different, but, you know, related in a way, I think. No, that does not irritate me. I think any Miles Davis (laughs) association, I'll take it. Right. Yes. Yeah, it's a genius. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then there's a little, some of those had a little bit because that music had the sounds of out, you know, of like outer space or something because it felt foreign, those sounds. Mm-hmm. So there was this relationship to surrealism in a lot of the imagery of that stuff. And, you know, there's a little bit of a Magritte like kind of yes. uh, the Kiriko, um vibe to some of the imagery that you're doing absolutely or at least yeah. that's where my and my uh goes. maybe also a big feeling like a big component of my work is improvisation so you that go. you know you can have like uh you know like john coltrane you could have like a format like a like a container for something but then on top of that it's all like solos it's all improv so like i i definitely have a few like a techniques or, you know, like the gradient or the curtains or there's like these, these modular pieces in a way, but they yeah. can kind of come through in a more intuitive kind of the final composition. It's not, I don't know what's going to happen. So yes, I love that, that association yeah, like with can, prog jazz of the seventies. <laughs> right. And you can use yeah. a standard, like, which is a painting in a frame or something mm-hmm. as the standard, but then improvising within that and kind of pushing it in a mm-hmm. way that pushes the medium without it being an exploded painting of like paint on the floor and yes over on the wall you know what i mean it, yeah it i need some like parameters straddles. yeah yeah, yeah. It straddles. otherwise it's too it's too much it's too out is too out <laughs> uh, did That's you happen did, uh, when growing up and in, are you athletic to sports ever a thing that you were into I was very bad. I mean, I tried, I really did, but I was like always the smallest one in the class. And I was on the bench a lot. I liked hanging out with my friends, like sitting on the bench and soccer, but I did have like, well, I played softball when I was little and I, and my, my cousin had like had played softball. He had like a giant mitt. And I remember catching a ball in left field. 
Mm-hmm. And that was like my golden moment in sports <laughs> was like, I was just at the right place at the right time. And that ball just like came right into my mitt. And I was, the crowd was like, roared. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, my, yeah. my father still listens, still talks about that as if it's yeah. like my crowning achievement in life. Like I've right. never done anything that has impressed him as much as that catch. So <laughs> you, you, uh, you Costanza did. You're I like, did. all right, that's a wrap. I'm done. <laughs> I'm no done. more sports. sports I'm leave on a high note. <laughs> yes. Well, I did actually know I did run the, I, I was a runner for a while. I ran oh, the really? New York city marathon and that, that really nice. was like the moment where I was like, it's a wrap. Like I did oh, it. Yeah, that'll make anyone. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's it's funny because lately I've been thinking a lot about the relationship between sports and, oh, and yes. art and and practice and like being mm. in it, a lot of people who are in athletics get, you know, they're they're pushing their body every day or they're they're trying to um, get into a practice of something and and I think artists do that too. Maybe not necessarily physically as much, but you know, this idea of hitting the studio and it's like the reps that you put in yes. on this to try to get better at it, you know, or, or to get a greater realization of what you're capable of doing within it. Yes. Yes. I think it's, it's like that knowing it's a long game and that you're not, you're not going to get it in one shot. You know, you have like training for a marathon was like that, or right. I am not physically, you know, I'm not a physically strong person, but I, I was would surprise myself like suddenly I was running 10 miles in an afternoon and that you know was just because I I had an app that told me how much to run every week and I had to do it I just went out and did it yeah there's a different kind of strength though there's mm-hmm. like lifting strength and then there's mental strength and right. endurance, endurance which is you know mm-hmm. they're different I mean they're all they have their own merits or whatever but they're they're different yeah have yeah. a uh, the strongman competition guy run a marathon and that could get <laughs> dicey <laughs> and vice versa. Much muscle. Yeah. You <laughs> those, want lean muscle. Yeah. Those people who win marathons, you, they're not going to bench mm-hmm. press too much. No, thanks. No. Why would you lift? Yeah. It's, those things are heavy. You don't want to lift them. <laughs> it's like the whole point. a case against the whole sport. Why would you lift something? It's heavy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good uh, point. Pain brushes yeah. are much more reasonable as far as something yeah. you lift all day. Yeah. I do think it's such a physical thing though. Like being an artist is I'm I get my exercise in the studio for sure because I do so much on my own. I don't really outsource anything. So all the canvas stretching and priming and all the ceramics and you know, it's actually like very it, yeah physical. It's a slog. I mean I'm <laughs> I yesterday I stretched you know, like a five by six foot painting and Ooh, yeah. you know and and primed it and stuff and I was like you know as I edge towards fifty years old here I'm I feel like it's not as easy as it used no. to be. <laughs> like, but apparently that's what you're supposed. To, that's how you stay young. You have to keep you stretching keep canvases. Stretch, yeah, or whatever exactly. it is that keeps you moving. Yeah, no, definitely. That's that what you know. Uh, use it or lose it pretty mm-hmm. much I'm mm-hmm. always I, I I played soccer growing up I still play and you know some days when I play with the old timers and the next morning I'm like oh like you know you just feel it everywhere and I'm like <laughs> maybe I should just hang up the cleats and I'm like no yes. because if I do it's just you know no it's almost you like can't. you're retiring it's like a stage of your life that you're giving up on which yeah. is tough yeah that's the beauty I- of painting though you can do it till you're whatever you know 
Oh my gosh. It's amazing. I, I love this about being like, I feel like I'm a little bit of a late bloomer, even though I've been working at this so long, but um, you know, I, I really, I think I struggled when I was in my thirties because I knew my forties were getting close, you know, and what that, that felt hard. I was like letting go of a version of myself as a, like a younger person. But now uh, I think just seeing all these artists who are in their eighties and now they're in their prime, it's so encouraging. Cause uh, yeah. I'm just excited about the next few decades. I, I feel like, you know, it's, it's different than being a musician where traditionally like, you know, you're a pop star when you're young and then, you know, you're, you, I guess you could be like Keith Richards and just like keep playing until you're like a, like a corpse, but, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's Awful. like, oh my gosh, he's like a crypt keeper. He looks yeah. like, <laughs> but I love him. I mean, I do, I've, I've definitely read his, uh, his autobiography a few times. Fascinating. Um, but yeah, as an artist, like, yeah, it's encouraging that it's a long game. I mean, I'm excited to be like, you know, my version of Georgia O'Keeffe in the desert, kind of all dried up and but still making work. Yeah. I mean, these, these people who are like, you know, you got to make a ton of money, like wall street or whatever, and burn out in like 15 years and stuff. And then what do you do? We, this may not be an easy route or whatever, but we can, this is the marathon. This isn't yes. the sprint. This is the long <laughs> game. It, it is know? the long game. It's mm-hmm. something too that in your life that you can gives you meaning, and there's something meaningful about the quest of doing this. That you know, I think that's what really makes us tick as mm-hmm. humans. That we need this feeling of doing something that's meaningful and that exploration. And it's not time based. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like it's going to go away in five years. So we can be sort of like driven and uh, inspired for decades, you know? Yeah. It really is a gift and that there are other people in like communities that can understand what you're doing and kind of be there on the journey. Definitely. Um, This talk has made me want to run a marathon, eat a donut, (laughs) listen to some Brian Eno. (laughs) Yes. Get some Jungian psychoanalysis. That, yeah. That's That's what I want to do. That's I don't know if next. I want to do that. That no. that might be <laughs> going too deep. Little... <laughs> Marathon is, I think that's similar. You know, you work a lot of, you work out a lot of things when you're running that much. So yeah. Flow state, you hit the mm-hmm. wall, mm-hmm. the proverbial wall that we mm-hmm. all hit in the studio when we black out, we're just working and it, it's kind of a beautiful thing, you know, the best. Yes. Yeah. which kind of works with ambient music. Oh yeah. You know what I listened to the other day? Not that you asked. Um, <laughs> what did you listen to the other actually day? Actually, it was yesterday when I was in the studio for a while. Minecraft music. Yes. <laughs> oddly beautiful. So funny. Yes, my son's kind of getting into Nintendo because my my husband is like was an undercover a gamer. I only realized this after we were married. You just blew his cover. Uh, I, well, now he's not undercover. Uh, well, his musician friends and people probably not listening to this anyway. But um, yeah, that's it's good music. Like the synth, it's, really it's like good. yeah, the Zelda, really good. Yeah, it's just and apparently young people love that stuff because they're all playing those games, so it mm-hmm. means a lot to them. But uh, I found it really like kind of nice for that hypnotic, get lost in the studio sort of music. So good, yeah. yeah. I, I support that. Is he playing Minecraft yet? I don't know what the no no no. I don't know. I, I'm like scared. I don't want him to play anything that's like an online gaming because I feel like that's like the ne- next level of addiction. Like yeah, Nintendo feels safe, and he's five, so yeah, five is pretty young. Get him, 
tour duty. I I, <laughs> I shielded my son from all that, and he oh my gosh. is obsessed now. Yes, like, I feel like it's what you want. You keep your children away yeah. from whatever you want to keep away from them. They're going to go tour. So do yourself a favor tonight. All right, <laughs> sit him down in a chair. Give him a mohawk. <laughs> He's had that. He has put a phone in his hands. <laughs> And turn on Call of Duty and everything's going to be, and actually, and then also put on like Lord of the Rings or something. Every, like I, I, it, I shielded my son from all that stuff for so long and he's just obsessed. I mean, yeah. he loves all that stuff. It's, you know, with my growing up, my mother had a friend who like ran a candy store. So there was always candy in our house and I, I hated candy. <laughs> I was like, who cares? My friends would come over and they were never allowed to have it. And you'd think they'd hit the lottery every time they walked through our door and they would like be like stuffing it in their shirt <laughs> and like, they're freaking out. And I was like, dude, that stuff's not that good. And they were like, you're nuts. This is amazing. So I think it is that thing is like, if you try to keep it away, yeah. it only be, they're going to get to it anyways. You know exactly. what I mean? Like kids these days, if you try to shield them from technology, it's just, it's their way that they're going to communicate. It's the way that you have to just teach them how to navigate it. Yes, Ideally, they're part of this world. Yeah, I'm quoting Lord of the Rings, but yes, they're they they are part of this world. It's like, true. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, it's it's we're evolving. Well, I mean, I'm using AI the term is evolving. Exactly, we're <laughs> evolving. <laughs> we're going down the tubes, so you might yeah. as well collect your kids down with it. Ah, let them play Minecraft <laughs> on the way down the chute. It'll take their mind off the grim realization of everything. <laughs> Yeah, and at least then we could sit down and eat a, a whole donut by ourselves without being bothered. God, I'm hungry now. <laughs> right. Well, so for people who want to check out your work, best way? Um, my website, it's emilyweiner.com or my Instagram is emilyweiner. It's E-I, like Oscar Mayer Wiener. Mm-hmm. In case anybody's wondering. There's always the question of the minor wiener, but. Well, people pronounce it both. I actually just passed going to a soccer game last weekend, a Oscar Meyer, Meyer Wiener Mobile on the Cross Bronx Expressway. Ooh, yeah. That sounds <laughs> of, so, that so classic. Brings it all together to the Bronx. Oh, wieners and the Bronx. Wiener, the whole thing together. <laughs> yeah, that's basically my origin story. <laughs> um. Yeah, so social media, website, and then do you have anything coming up that you want to plug? Um, we just had a show, right? Yeah, just I have a fair. show up now at Pentimenti in Philadelphia, and I have a, the, the Future Fair just happened. Um, and the next few things are uh, to be determined. I mean, I know, well, but they're not announced yet. To be announced. When I, uh, next time I'm down honky tonkin, I'll send you a <laughs> message. Please do. Yeah. I would love to show you around Nashville. It's a good, it's a great place. Definitely. For right. artists and for art. And Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. They have a great guitar shop down there that I went to. It was dangerous. Ugh. Was it Gruen Guitars? It was on, is that Broadway, that main strip? Or is it yeah. Main Street? Yeah. It, was it used one... to be on Broadway. It's moved, but oh my gosh, they had like mandolins and, and banjos from the 20s and this place I went to had one big wall, like a big ass wall with like guitars <laughs> on the whole, and they were all vintage. And really yes, nice. yeah. It was like I, you know, I walked through the door and it was like you don't want to do this. No, it's danger. <laughs> Nashville's the place for that. Yeah, pretty great. All right, well, thanks so much. It was great talking. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> <laughs>